from UWM. It's Partners for Health, a podcast about health, research, and everything in between. Each episode, you'll hear a conversation from two different health researchers about their passions, behind what drives them, and how they got to where they are. Partners for Health is an initiative between the College of Health Sciences, the College of Nursing, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health, all at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Additional recording facilities are also provided by the UWM Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced in the good land of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. On behalf of the producers and all the scholars that we feature on this podcast, thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Partners for Health. I'm Carrie Wade, health sciences librarian and co-producer, alongside David Fraser from the Center for Urban Population Health. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different compared to some of our other episodes. Our pair opted to do a little bit differently rather than having a long, continuous conversation that we would break up into two episodes. They opted to interview each other separately. In our first episode between Dr. Helen Meyer and Dr. Dimitri Topizas, Dr. Dimitri Topizas interviewed Dr. Helen Meyer, and this time we'll be turning the tables. So in this episode, you will hear Dr. Helen Meyer from the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health interviewing Dr. Dimitri Topizas from the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare. So there's no need to go back and listen to that other episode. You're not really going to miss anything. You will just simply hear another interview in this episode. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce Dr. James Dimitri Topizas, who has been at the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at UWM since 2008, where he teaches trauma counseling to master's students and the philosophy of science to doctoral students. He has conducted research in the following substantive areas, the long-term effects of child maltreatment and other adverse childhood experiences, interventions aimed at preventing or treating early psychological trauma, the long-term impacts of early childhood interventions, and evaluating innovative mindfulness practices for justice-oriented communities. And he has honors to go along with these research initiatives. In 2009, Governor Jim Doyle appointed him to the Wisconsin Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Board, where he served until 2014. Like many of our Partners for Health researchers, Dr. Tapizas has worked on community-focused initiatives, including Project Connect, which studied interventions to reduce problem behaviors among foster children exposed to early childhood maltreatment. After the success of that project, he teamed up with Dr. Joshua Mursky and leaders at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, where they launched the Institute for Child and Family Wellbeing, where he serves as the clinical director for the Institute, which is devoted to improving the lives of low-income children and families through research, practice, and policy. So if you want a good bullet point overview of what Dimitri does, I would say that they're trauma-informed care and therapy and teaching that, mindfulness, and especially towards justice-oriented communities, early childhood interventions, 
adverse childhood experience interventions and treatment, and then community-focused research like so many others at UWM. So without further ado, let's remind you that Dr. Helen Meyer from the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health, who you can hear more about in the previous episode, will be interviewing Dr. Tapitzas here on Partners for Health. So without further ado, here they are. Uh, so Dimitri, Hi, now that you're in the hot seat, um, yeah. so tell me a little bit about um, tell me a little about yourself. Where are you from, and how did you get to UWM? Yeah, so actually, I was uh, I was raised in Milwaukee, so I'm a Milwaukee oh, nice. yeah, by childhood, um, and uh, I spent my college years out east. Um, I got my BA at Harvard University, Rolling Green Pastures of Harvard. Then do you I, want me to um, brush your shoulder off? No, not at all, please. Okay. And then uh, um, <laughs> I went to the um, I uh, sort of took a roundabout, uh, roundabout route to UW-Madison, which is where I did my graduate work and uh, earned a uh, doctoral or doctorate in um, social welfare. Came back to the Milwaukee area um, and actually practiced as a licensed um, clinical social worker uh, for a number of years, which uh, that practice actually really influenced my, um, influences my teaching and influences my research. Um, so I consider myself a bit of a research practitioner. In other words, I try to work sort of at the nexus between research and practice and um, do what I can to help translate research into practice so that the, the time lag between um, research findings being um, implemented within practice settings or even policy context is accelerated. It doesn't take as long as historically it has. So that's one of kind of the identities that I, I see myself occupying or spaces that I try to occupy as a researcher, this sort of research practitioner model. Okay. Um, can I ask uh, you to give an example of kind of that intersection between research and practice that you focus on? Yeah, for sure. So um, so my primary interest is in the, the short and long-term effects of exposure to early childhood trauma. Um, trauma primarily defined as... Um, family-level violence, whether it's exposure to intimate partner violence or domestic violence, exposure to child abuse and neglect, um, or exposure to other adversities, other adversities in the household. So, for instance, a, a parent in the household is struggling with mental health-related challenges. Um, while that might not ultimately result in violence, it might be experienced as significant adversity on, on, on the part of the child. So there's been a lot of work um, in helping to identify what are the various experiences or manifestations of adversity and, and trauma children can experience, how those ultimately affect um, their life course trajectory, whether it be their, uh, their health trajectories or their socio-emotional adjustment and development, um, their status attainment as adults, um, and, and even their, um, their experience of health and well-being in later adulthood. And so there's been a great deal of basic research into early childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, toxic stress as experienced uh, amongst children um, in uh, difficult life circumstances. But we are sort of now at the vanguard of translating that research into practice and policy. And uh, so while early in my career I conducted basic science uh, to help better define, well, one, what are those adversities, and two, how do they affect children, primarily their socio-emotional development, and adolescent and early adult status attainments. By status attainments, I mean outcomes such as um, high uh, educational attainment, um, earnings, 
um, and even um, antisocial behaviors, so their involvement in the justice system. So how did these early life experiences affect these later life experiences? And we developed insights into um, what were the trajectories, what were the pathways, what were the important protective factors, what were the important um, risk factors, what were the important protective processes and risk processes, et cetera. Those are somewhat technical terms, but they all come down to helping us better understand what does a life look like for a kid who experiences a lot of adversity? How do they end up doing well? How do they end up doing poorly? Um, the, the real challenge now is translating those insights into practices and policies that can affect children in real time and in real life. And so I've been involved with um, several close colleagues at UW-Milwaukee in the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, namely um, Josh Mursky and, and David Pate, um, in taking those insights into the field and testing various interventions um, that ultimately can help these children and their families sort of get back on track so that those kids can realize positive life course outcomes like, for instance, graduating from high school, um, entering into college, or obtaining and sustaining uh, meaningful employment, avoiding involvement with the, the juvenile or criminal justice system. So what are the types uh, of interventions and inputs that we can ultimately implement and then test um, based on this earlier science, implement and test um, to help these children sort of realize positive life course outcomes. So that's one way that we try to translate research into practice. And in this, in this particular instance, what I'm describing is sort of translating basic research into intervention, uh, intervention science. So what kinds of interventions and services can we, can we ultimately implement within various systems um, here in our, our uh, fair city of Milwaukee, systems like child welfare, systems like home visiting, systems like early childhood education, um, and on and on. What sorts of public systems that have a relatively large reach can we affect ultimately to help children who've experienced a lot of adversity unwind that adversity and, and again, um, sort of engage in life course trajectories that are meaningful and, and um, fruitful and help them thrive? So can you give me an example of um, an intervention sure. that you've been working on sure. or that you would like to see happen? Sure. Yeah. So um, a little bit earlier in my career, um, again, my, my colleague and close friend Josh Mursky and I took a um, relatively well-validated, what's called a trauma-informed evidence-based intervention, a model that was initially designed to help children who were experiencing a lot of aggressive or um, what we call externalizing behavior. So they were aggressive or they were inattentive or they were defiant. Um, this intervention had been shown to help those children ultimately resolve some of those problem behaviors um, and get sort of um, uh, develop socio-emotional skills that they hadn't, hadn't experienced or hadn't demonstrated previously. Um, so that ultimately they could succeed in the classroom, could succeed with their peer group, and could have a much stronger and better um, and uh, uh, more fruitful relationship with their parents. This intervention, which is called parent-child interaction therapy, is meant to be or was meant to be dyadic in nature. In other words, it's meant to work both with the parent and with the child. Um, and these sorts of interventions, particularly when we're working with younger children, you would you could imagine that we'd want to work with their parents. We can't just help change a child without helping the family or the environment in which that child operates change also. So this intervention is meant to actually work through the parent to help the child 
um, resolve their emotional and behavioral um, um, problem presentations. And um, so we took this, this sort of relatively well-validated intervention that was meant, for, meant to be delivered in outpatient clinics, and we modified it for use within these different types of systems, these larger public systems that I was mentioning earlier. So, for instance, um, a child welfare system that works with biological families who are struggling perhaps with a number of different stressors, um, for instance, poverty, um, uh, unemployment, mental health-related challenges, behavioral health-related challenges, struggling with a lot of different stressors, um, and ultimately being at risk for are actually um, perpetrating child abuse and neglect, working with those families um, in order to help the parents develop better uh, parenting skills and then help the children um, ultimately experience a greater sense of safety, um, overcome some of their socio-emotional um, habits, which are causing even more problems in their environment. Um, so we took that we took that intervention, adapted it for child welfare, the child welfare system, and then implemented it within the child welfare system and tested it through a rigorous randomized controlled trial. We actually were funded um, from the National Institutes of Health, um, NICHD, National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. Um, we were funded with uh, through an R15. Um, funding mechanism, and we conducted this work oh, from, I think, 2011 to 2014, and it uh, turned out with modifications that would ultimately help this intervention fit more snugly within, within this um, uh, public system, um, that it did result in uh, better outcomes for the children, and we actually used it with their foster parents. We've, uh, we've since that time adapted it for biological parents, but initially we used it for foster parents. We applied it uh, within the foster care context. Um, so that's an example of sort of how we're working in this applied and translational space, taking the initial insights about, you know, what are the challenges these kids face and um, combining that with intervention work that was done in clinics um, and then ultimately devising uh, a program and a project that could um, benefit children, sort of our most socioeconomically disadvantaged families and children, children and families who are receiving child welfare services. Um, and to date, um, even after that project ended, to date we're working with our child welfare partners over at Children's Wisconsin or Children's Hospital of Wisconsin uh, to continue to implement parent-child interaction therapy in various subcontexts within that setting um, to, again, ensure that these families have um, exposure to or have the advantage of our best sort of interventions, um, and we're helping, the, uh, helping our partners over there continue to track track the outcomes of the children and the families. That's wonderful. Um, so I have a question that is based on this, and I don't know if I'm going to be asking it the right way, but, you know, ho hopefully I am. So just being a parent myself and thinking about parents potentially coming into your interventions, how do you, first of all, engage parents to be receptive to therapy, mm -hmm. um, depending on the intervention, mm -hmm. as well as make sure that interventions are organized so that they're not seen, a, um, so that the parents don't feel vilified. that they're, do yeah, vilified mm -hmm. or that they're, you know, constantly under attack, that they're doing something wrong. Um, or, you know, you know, obviously these Absolutely. are families that are facing, you know, multiple disadvantages mm -hmm. in different areas or different mm -hmm. issues. And so how can you, you know, um, make them feel welcome and empowered mm -hmm. versus um, being felt that they're attacked for right. 
things that might be out of their control. Well, firstly, and honestly, we let parents know that this is an intervention that was initially designed for children, children who are experiencing behavior problems. And many children in the child welfare system are experiencing or demonstrating behavior problems because they've been exposed to so much adversity. And that, that adversity oftentimes manifests as externalizing behaviors. In other words, an inability to regulate emotions, to regulate behavior, um, to regulate attention such that it um, ultimately um, th- that dis- those dysregulation problems manifest as aggression or inattention or defiant. So we let parents know that this intervention can help you develop really specialized skills that, generally speaking, are only needed when parents are trying to care for children who present with the types of challenges that your child presents with. So we're not trying to vilify the child or we're not take, trying to absolve parents of responsibility to, um, one, uh, to overcome abuse and neglect, and two, to develop um, positive discipline skills. Uh, at the same time, we're trying to let them know that, listen, child, child rearing is difficult. It's even more difficult when you have a child who in the moment is presenting um, in this particular way. And so we want to help you develop skills that ultimately can help you bond more intimately with that child and ultimately can help you manage that child's behavior in uh, with, through positive discipline and more effectively. That tends to be a, sort of an alluring proposition for sure. parents. It enhances um, their motivation. But these are also parents who are involved in the child welfare system. So there are plenty of messages to suggest that their parenting hasn't been adequate to date. And so we also let them know that by virtue of learning these skills, not only will you see, see positive effects on your children, but you'll also be able to show those that you're working with in the child welfare system, including the courts, um, that you're enhancing your parenting skills if, in fact, it was a skill deficit that led to this, to this problem. Even if it wasn't, you're developing specialized skills that are going ha- to help your child. And I want to say that clearly because not all parents who are involved in the child welfare system are involved in that system because there are deficits in their parenting skills um, necessarily. That might be the problem. That might not be the problem. There might be other issues faced, such as mental or behavioral health challenge. Nonetheless, the specter of learning these specialized skills is oftentimes quite alluring to parents, well, bio parents, for instance, or birth parents in the child welfare system, um, because they've been working with children or trying to care for children um, who, for whatever reason, um, has been somewhat challenging, whether it's because of the child's temperament or what the child has experienced or because of the parent's own experience. And the specter of learning these new skills oftentimes is very exciting for parents. And so we we put it in client-centered motivational terms that avoids any stigmatization or or, or vilification of the parents themselves. It's it's an excellent question. Yeah. I think, um, obviously, I think you've... uh uh, been witness to a lot of healing. And I think that's yeah. really wonderful. Yeah, that's it. I really appreciate you invoking the term healing. We have seen some real magic take place when serving both foster families and biological families in the child welfare system with, with this particular program. Um, it, it's, it's evidence-based for a reason. It actually, um, it, it really does lead to um, positive outcomes amongst the vast majority of families who are able to complete the services. And I think there are n- at least several really critical um, reasons why it's, it's, it tends to be so effective. Um, number one, it, it, it serves both the parent and the child at the same time. Again, it's, we call that ecologically valid. We, we wouldn't serve a child alone who's anywhere from two to, four, to two to seven years old. We wouldn't serve that child in isolation of their ecology, their family, their peer group, et cetera. Um, and working with their parent, obviously, it's the most important factor of force in their lives. So working in this dyadic context, 
um, I think enhances the probability of success. Secondly, we work in real time. It's an in vivo intervention. So in other words, we're actually coaching parents while they're interacting with their children. Um, so the skills that they are um, implementing um, are skills that they're learning in real time, in the moment, and then they can generalize those skills um, to the home setting. Um, so it's this real active coaching intervention that requires a lot of effort on the part of the interventionist, but also a lot of effort on the part of the parent because they're, they're learning new skills. But that effort really pays off in the form of generalizable skills. So I think those are at least two really, really, really good reasons. Um, I'd add that because we've had so much success with this program and it's been so exciting to us, We've also we've drawn down initial uh, additional funding in order to not just implement and test this within the, the Children's Wisconsin context, um, but also then to sort of disseminate this to practitioners or clinicians or psychotherapists, child mental health providers who are serving kids in the child welfare system. So these are oftentimes called sort of peripheral satellite supportive interventionists. We, uh, we received a grant from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, a, um, a Center, of Excellent grant, Center of Excellence grant that has enabled us to train those clinicians who are um, serving children in child welfare, to train them in parent-child interaction therapy, also to train them in, in several additional modalities, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy as well. But we're, ultimately what we're trying to do is to ensure that these children and families who, as you say, experienced or who face um, so many adversities and disadvantages have access to the best available evidence when it comes to good interventions. The, that grant, we call it the Trauma and Recovery Program. Um, it is in its, I believe, a third year funding. And uh, I'm involved in the parent-child interaction therapy training component. So um, we've trained two cohorts now and we'll be training a third. And it's exciting to see it to see this program disseminated not only throughout child welfare, but also um, sort of throughout the southeastern Wisconsin uh, mental health community. Do you have uh, uh, your sights set on going national with um, your rollout eventually? Yeah. Conquer the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, there there's a national um, network of parent-child interaction therapy um, trainers, mm -hmm. and um, we are just now, in fact, we'll have a, um, a site visit uh, to be certified as one of those, uh, as, as, as a trainer, at least a regional trainer, that will take place in February. So our sites are really set uh, beyond southeastern Wisconsin and, and to the, the, the state at large. And uh, again, we'd really, we really would like to see these children who, who experience so many disadvantages and their, and, and their parents have access to effective interventions, and this is, this is one of them. So our sites are really set on helping to train the, the, the state mental health community. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so the next question that I have for you is is kind of switching gears a little bit more into teaching. Mm -hmm. And so the master's in social work is a professional degree. Yes. And so how, um, and obviously you have a very strong um, clinical background. Um, and so how do you work in your research into shaping and molding your um, students who are, you know, maybe more on a professional degree path, right. right? And, 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 and how does, so how does your research life kind of, um, come over into your instruction and working with, um, master students? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I primarily teach in the master's program. That's where I do the, the brunt of my teaching, uh, or instructional work. And so, um, because I, uh, I'm involved in so much applied translational work, where I partner strongly with um, community agencies in order to, to implement and test what we think or what I think are, are innovative 
uh, innovative programs that ultimately help people recover from their experience of adversity and trauma, whether it's adults or children or both. Um, I think I, 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 I have the opportunity to take that work into the classroom um, and share with students you know, what are potentially innovative or, innovative or cutting edge means by which we can help people unravel their experience of, of adversity and trauma. So I teach primarily in the uh, Trauma-Informed Care Certificate Program, uh, and I teach a course, uh, Trauma Counseling Practice, which helps, uh, which exposes students to hopefully innovative and uh, promising and evidence, evidence-based ways by which we can ultimately address trauma. What's interesting about that is we have only learned over the course of the last two, two and a half, three decades how to effectively um, treat trauma at, at, at various levels, whether it's the individual level, the family level, the couple's level, um, uh, the group level, the community level. We're, we're just now really kind of sharpening our tools in, in being able to address and resolve lifetime adversity and trauma exposure. Um, so what I, what I generally do is um, I'll expose students to a lot of really cool models, but I also, uh, because it's what I know best, not, not, not trying to be um, insular, but it's because I, what I know best, I'll bring in experiences that I've had in the community while conducting this translational or applied or community-engaged research. So, for instance, I've, um, I've developed a, what, what, what we refer to as a trauma screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment protocol. It's an adaptation of a substance misuse protocol called uh, expert screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment. So I've adapted it for the problem of trauma exposure and trauma symptoms. And I did so uh, several years back in concert with uh, a few colleagues of mine um, in the School of Social Welfare. So shout out to Lisa Berger and mm-hmm. Laura Adosalai, with whom I worked on a, another SAMHSA-funded uh, training grant. And in that context, I, I, I developed this protocol where its purpose is ultimately to address the experience of trauma exposure, have a brief conversation around that experience, primarily with adults, to enhance, um, enhance awareness, enhance insight, and even enhance motivation for people to seek treatment if that problem of trauma exposure and trauma consequences is ultimately affecting um, functioning in the present moment. We've implemented this particular protocol um, within a number of different settings, clinic-based primary care settings, workforce development settings, um, and home visit- nurse home visiting settings. I say all that um, ultimately to respond to your question, which is I take that intervention into the, into the classroom because I like it so much and I'm familiar with it. And it, I use it as an example of, quote, unquote, trauma-informed care in action. In my field, in the field of uh, social work and counseling psychology, we hear this term trauma-informed care often. Um, and um, it's been a really great ascendant framework in my world to better understand what is trauma, what are the various um, general approaches that we can use to address trauma with our with our charges, with our clients, our um, service recipients, et cetera? Um, but we've sort of kept our definition of trauma-informed care in, in a bit of a general sphere. We understand the assumptions and the principles and the framework, but we, we're just now really starting to operationalize it so that we have a deeper understanding of what the practices are. So this uh, this protocol that I developed called TS, or trauma screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment, is an example of how we can sort of translate or operationalize trauma-informed care into real-time practice. So I give a bunch of demonstrations of this particular protocol in my classroom during one module anyway. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's a really fun way, really active way to bring my research into the classroom. Students respond to it. I ask them, like, give me some feedback. Um, what do you think about it? And then I share with them 
um, sort of the elements of it. And ultimately, I sort of unpack it and, and try to share with them or try to sort of demonstrate how it ultimately is an example of trauma-informed care in action. And I think it, I mean, it's fun for me and hopefully it, I'm real active when I do it because it's something that I like. So hopefully it animates the material for the students. That's wonderful. Putting tools in toolboxes. Yeah. That's one of my big um, um, things that I champion as a kind of working in a um, master's program that's a professional that's right. more oriented towards a professional degree that's you know, right just need them to have the skills and that's, that's right. great that's yeah. right like i think theory and conceptualization is great and fine but in in schools such as ours in fields such as ours where we have uh pr- applied professional um or we do applied professional work prof- applied professional work um, we really want to give people concrete skills and tools. Uh, when they graduate from our programs, they feel like they're equipped to serve to serve families, um, children, adults, youth, et cetera. And generally speaking, um, uh, those who graduate from our program are serving sort of the highest risk families and indiv- individuals in our communities. And so they, they, they need powerful, strong tools in order to do that well. That's wonderful. Um, so I have a question that's a little bit more... Um, uh, broad, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, and I can tell you the motivation for it. Um, so the question is, do you feel that the nature of trauma experienced in our country is changing? Hmm. And what is motivating this question is just thinking about the multiple things. So news, Mm -hmm. um, thinking about the internet. Mm -hmm. And so our, you know, I'm an epidemiologist, so thinking about our exposure, you know, mixture is changing. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also just kind of um, thinking about all the different natural disasters that are happening now, the hurricanes down in the southeastern part Mm -hmm. of the country and the wildfires out west. And, you know, and and so just, you know, um, I don't know if natural disasters and and other you know, it's clearly a type of trauma having to, you know, pick up and leave. And it's very different than maybe what you do in your clinical work um, or your research work. Um, But I just, you know, wondered what your thoughts are on kind of the shifting nature of trauma and trauma experience um, and maybe even the size of the population that's being exposed to different types of trauma in our country these days. Yeah, that's a great question. I take it as a sort of a twofold question. So one, are more people experiencing mm-hmm. adversity yep. and trauma? And two, is the nature of the trauma changing. or the adversity changing? Yep. Yeah. So um, I don't have, I'm, I'm going to answer your question um, theoretically or speculatively. I don't, I don't know. I don't know for sure. So mm-hmm. I can't answer mm-hmm. empirically. Yeah, it's just your impression. Yeah, yeah, but my impression would be yes on both counts. So is the nature, yeah, I think the nature is changing in part just by virtue of our technology. So we know that, I mean, the nature of bullying is changing, for instance. So online bullying or bullying through social media is, I would, I would suspect, um, increases exposure to bullying, number one. But two, it also introduces sort of a new form of bullying where, where the bullier doesn't get any feedback necessarily about her or his or their bullying. You know, the, the, it's one sends a message or... Um, you know, or, or, or completes a tweet or whatever, and um, you're not going to see you're that not going to see the response. Visceral reaction, exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. So it could even, to some extent, enhance the severity um, of bullying, and certain, and certainly enhance the frequency of it. So that's so I would say, yeah, the nature of it might change by virtue, um, and even the frequency of it might change just by virtue of our uh, of the ascendancy or the introduction of social media. I would also argue that. Because exposure to adversity, just like health, is is yoked 
to poverty or to um, uh, income levels. In other words, um, the lower my level of, of income or uh, the more likely I am to be exposed to various forms of adversity and trauma, such as child abuse or neglect, such as community violence. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If I live in a low-income family, even if my family is intact or um, is um, uh, caring for me in quite adequate, if not um, quite heroic ways, I still may be exposed to a great deal of adversity in my community because my family can't afford to live anywhere else than a relatively high-crime, disorganized, violent community. Um, say using Milwaukee for an example, um, where there tend to be uh, the very strong demarcations between high crime, low income communities and relatively middle income communities. So um, I may be exposed to community violence. So when income disparities increase like they have over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, my guess is that exposure to trauma, particularly amongst lower income groups also increases. And in other words, population level experiences of, of trauma increases because more people are lower income. Um, so my guess is that the frequency also is increasing um, or the prevalence is increasing. Mm-hmm. In, other, in other words, more people are experiencing significant trauma, particularly in childhood. And part of that could just be, could just be a function of disparities of wealth, growing disparities of wealth. And that's a problem. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's a great question. Again, uh, that takes us back to one of our earlier sort of themes, which is that um, so good housing policy is good health, but good poverty policy is good health policy. Um, I would argue that, you know, it's also good mental health policy. Right. You know, it, it, it reduces exposure to trauma. And we know that exposure to significant, particularly early childhood trauma, is a significant determiner, d- a determinant or predictor of mental and behavioral health problems later in life. Mm-hmm. So enhancing the probability that, that all of our children um, are exposed to adequate care by virtue of resources, um, the resource uh, um, availability t- for their parents and their family, that will, that will ultimately help our, our overall mental health, our, the population level mental health. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Another question that I had for you um, is I can't help but notice in your um, background, you kind of skipped over this earlier, but I'm going to pin you down on it. Uh-oh. So I see that you have a master's in spirituality. Oh, neat. And I just, um, I was curious what motivated that course of study and, um, y- you know, its lasting impressions on you and how you incorporate that in your work today, if, if at all. That's a great question. Well, I... So I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a very um, dedicated student of flourishing and well-being. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm really interested in what contributes to um, an individual, a family, a community, and a population's um, level of, of, of flourishing and well-being. Um, and I think, uh, one, I can't answer that question if I'm trying to answer that question and, and grant, I'm just, you know, I'm doing it as modestly and humbly as I can just to understand this kind of pressing question that just came into my mind when I was a young person. Um, I can't answer that question one without understanding how we overcome adversity. Um, because I think experiences of adversity, even trauma are almost endemic to, to, to the human condition. So how do we, how do we come overcome experiences of adversity? That said, I don't think that I do think that we can try to do our best as the, do the best we can as a collective to prevent unnecessary experiences of adversity and trauma. 
Um, nonetheless, I'm really interested in how we naturally overcome experiences of adversity and ultimately um, cultivate and promote well-being. And I think that that answer has kind of a, uh, I think that question has a twofold answer. I think one way we do that um, is by virtue of addressing and resolving our wounds, however, however we do that, perhaps with the help of our parents, perhaps with the help, if we're older, with a, uh, with a mental health professional or whatever. That's the healing paradox is what, whatever wounds remain by virtue of my exposure to uh, trauma and adversity. Generally speaking, if those wounds are bothering me, the way to overcome it is not to ignore it or, or to overcome them is not to ignore them, but instead to face them um, with the support of loving others um, and ultimately incorporate that experience into my understanding of self and my life narrative. So I'm, I'm really interested in the psychological processes by which we overcome adversity. But I'm also interested not just in how we overcome um, adversity, but how we engage in even something, something greater than that, because life isn't just about overcoming adversity. Um, it's also about... It'd be nice to thrive. Yeah, <laughs> experiencing, exactly, experiencing a, 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 a great sense of well-being, flourishing, um, and, and, and thriving. And the way I answer that question, I'm not saying everybody answers it, that question this way, but the way I at least addressed that question was to explore spirituality. And I do think that um, to some degree spirituality can um, uh, sort of help me connect with something larger than myself, help me disidentify with my sort of mundane experiences, um, help me engage in practices that promote a, a, a sense of transcendence or a sense of detachment or a sense of compassion or, or, or a sense of wisdom. Um, so I'm, a, I'm really interested in experiences of, of spirituality. I'm interested in sort of supporting them and those with whom I work. I'm interested in pursuing them myself. Interestingly enough, when I interview people in... Um, uh, in the cent uh, central city neighborhoods of Milwaukee, when I implement this uh, trauma screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment protocol within various settings in, uh, in, um, in Milwaukee Center, and, and I ask people, so I will ask people not only what is your experience of adversity, um, but I also ask them, how do you cope with and manage and heal from these experiences of adversity? So I ask them, what, what are your resilience sort of factors and processes? Um, more than half will say, um, you know, I really rely on my, my spiritual practices, whatever that might be, um, reading, contemplative, uh, contemplative practices, prayer or, or mindfulness or meditation, um, connecting with, uh, the fellowship of a, of a church or spiritual or religious community, um, et cetera. So, um, for a lot of people, it tends to be a real helpful means by which, they cope with, with and manage stress and trauma and maybe even transcend it to some extent. So I'm really interested in this dual track of um, the, the psychological resolution of, of adversity along with sort of the spiritual transcendence or, or spiritual illumination of one's experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and actually, I just have a, a question, a follow-up based on something that you said. So... Um, in in implementing your protocol um, and in having these conversations with these individuals um, and asking them about the different adversities that they face, do you see um, the shift start to happen with even just the acknowledgement ah, of trauma or adversity? Question. And, you know, that like 
oh, someone's listening to me. And is that empowering for the individuals? Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, it's that even that communication of just telling someone about your problem, right? And yeah. and having that conversation and that someone else deems that this is important and it's not, you know, it's not yeah. just in my head yeah. or whatever else. Like, no, this is a legitimate adversity that yeah. I face. And so I was just wondering if you could comment on that. You're a great podcast host. That is a really good question, Elena. <laughs> yeah. So um, absolutely. I, I try. Th- there, <laughs> there are a number, I think, a number of benefits of just having this conversation alone. So one, um, defining the experience of trauma. So many people who, um, who are exposed to a good deal of adversity just day in and day out don't necessarily identify that adversity or that violence or that trauma as something distinct, as something... Um, abnormal or as something difficult because it's not abnormal. It's not distinct. It's sort of just the, it's sort of um, a, a fiber that's woven into people's life fabric. So um, being able to identify this as a, a distinct experience that oftentimes leads to problem amongst many different people. I'm not saying you are having any problems, but it's a distinct experience that leads to various challenges that can be eye-opening, normalizing, and destigmatizing for people like, oh man, you mean... You mean, can't this do anything is, about it until you name it and recognize exactly it, right? like yeah. this is significant. Like this is something. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is actually a phenomenon, a mm-hmm. thing. And by the way, this phenomenon, this this experience, can lead to these types of problems. So that leads to a second sort of um, epiphany, which is that these issues ultimately, oftentimes, undermine functioning and give rise to these various problems. And the problems that I name are very common, ubiquitous challenges that people face in their personal lives, whether it is, for instance, um, use of alcohol and drugs in order to avoid the memories of trauma and adversity, whether it's social isolation, whether it's the use of um, anger as sort of a coping skill in in their social or interpersonal life, um, when, when I share with people that these are really common outcomes or outgrowths or consequences of significant trauma exposure, they're like, whoa, you mean I'm just not, I'm just not defective? No, you're having very natural reactions to very difficult life experiences. So it's very destigmatizing, very normalizing, and very illuminating for people. And that alone can be, quote, unquote, therapeutic. I'm not suggesting that we're, we're conducting therapy in the course of this 30-minute brief um, screening and intervention or screening and brief intervention, but I am suggesting that the, the conversation alone can be incredibly therapeutic and helpful and, 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 um, and liberating. So um, agreed fully. And then ultimately, when we, when, when we have that conversation, we also say to folks, look, it, it can be really difficult to overcome some of these health risk behaviors or, 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 or life habits that are causing you trouble without at the same time addressing these experiences of stress and trauma because the experiences of stress and trauma in some ways are fueling these these sort of um, negative life habits or health risk behavior. And it's really difficult to, to change those life habits without at the same time addressing the stress and trauma. This comes from, from theory and practice in the field. Um, and uh, so that is a way by which, a means by which we try to enhance people's um, interest in and motivation for help seeking, you know, so would you be willing to seek a mental health professional or behavioral health professional or, or connect with a pastor that you trust or, um, or, or, or what have you? Um, so we, we use this conversation to enhance motivation to, for, for help seeking. And, um, what we have found is that over half of the people we have spoken with 
are interested, by virtue of this conversation, become interested in seeking help in areas that they haven't sought help in before. And we find that to be a bit of a win. Like that's, you know, we're, we're not arguing that this is the be all and end all, that, that mental or behavioral health treatment is the answer to population level distress caused by trauma and adversity, but it's one answer. And it's so one way that we, we, we're combating the problem. But yes, to answer your question, I think just by virtue of having this, this question, having this conversation, I think we, even if someone doesn't say yes, they're excited. Yeah. That's really interesting. The power of listening. Yeah. Um, so just kind of here to wrap up, um, what do you see as kind of, um, in your five to 10 year future, what, where do you want to take all of this next? And what do you see as the next big project you're going to undertake? That's a good question. So we I continue to kind of put a lot of focus on this trauma expert protocol. We're developing a, a manual for it right now and um, uh, testing outcomes within a nurse home visiting program um, with the help of partners in uh, at our central at the Central Racine County Health Department. Um, I'm working closely with Josh Mursky here in the School of Social Welfare to do that work. So I think what I'd really like to do is just continue to push that that work. Um, um, potentially test it with a, um, a randomized controlled trial in, in, in a, a health-related setting, perhaps. Um, but I, another line of work that I'm really interested in is, is better understanding how, how people naturally or organically or natively um, manage and heal from exposure to trauma, particularly, um, particularly families and adults that we serve within the social work world. So we're, we've got a study undergoing, um, underway right now, qualitative study to inquire, sort of interrogate um, or, or follow this question, pursue this question. How do people naturally heal from adversity and hopefully in, incorporate insights from that work into um, the intervention work that we're doing currently? It's really interesting whether you realize it or not. You have a really nice arc, right, in starting out early and kind of defining trauma. What is it? Measuring it, right, to dealing with the crisis and the helping people get through that and then now the healing. Yeah, so yeah. it's a nice, nice arc you've yeah, got going on yeah. there. Thank you. Um, I just want to highlight the, the notion that, you know, when people do talk about their experiences of spirituality in the context of this trauma expert, you know, we always just honor people's experiences. Mm-hmm. We're, ne- we're never, you know, we're never advocating for any one approach or even any sort of approach that, that reflects spirituality, but instead just honoring people's experience. And what's just been illuminating to me is that many people do invoke, um, invoke uh, their experience of, of, of spirituality when answering the question, sure. how do you cope with all this yeah. stuff? So I just want to well, sort of make that um, clear. I'm sure you, maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard the phrase, um, I cast my burden on God and I go free, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that relieving often. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. of, of this is a problem, I'm going to give it up to a higher power right. and, you know, Absolutely. it'll be what it'll be. Well, we but, hear that. We hear, we, hear that yeah. from, we hear that perspective from yeah. a good number of folks. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Cool. Pleasure speaking with yeah, you. Yeah, you as well. This has been really fun. Yeah. And we hope you had as much fun listening to that as we did recording Dr. Helen Meyer and Dr. Dimitri Topizas from the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health and the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, respectively. Partners for Health is produced and recorded on the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee along the southwest shores of the Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinick rivers meet, and the peoples of Wisconsin's sovereign Ashinaabe, Ho-Chunk, 
Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. If you'd like to find out more about these tribes and their sacred lands, please visit the Electaquini Institute at UWM for more information. Partners for Health is a collaborative initiative between the College of Health Sciences, the College of Nursing, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Recording facilities were made possible by the UWM Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced in the good land of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you so much for listening.